Well, let's uh, spend some time in God's Word. That's the main reason we're here today. And I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to finish this today. And you're going to see in a moment why I decided to not finish Hebrews 12 last week on Mother's Day. <laughs> because, because I'm just going to be honest, it's, the, it's um, a, a, a tough passage. It's the final warning of Hebrews. And so... Last week, we st- instead, we looked at the life of Ruth, didn't we? And we got to kind of walk through uh, the book of Ruth and find some amazing principles there. But here we come today to the final warning of Hebrews. If you remember in our study, there are five warnings that are strewn throughout the book of Hebrews. And this is the, the final one. And what that means, possibly, for some of you today who maybe have been with us in this journey, that it means also that this is the final call to receive God for yourself. Maybe not forever, but maybe God will be speaking today and through this warning. And it comes to us right away in verse 25. And I just want you to see it there. He says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. It doesn't say him who has spoken, you know, one time in the past. It doesn't say him who once spoke long ago or even speaks only when your Bibles are open. It says him who speaks. And that is one of the greatest truths of all, the truth of God speaking. He speaks in his world. He speaks in his universe. He is the creator God who spoke all things into existence, isn't he? He said, let there be light, and there was. The word of God made the the will of God manifest. He, He willed that there be light, and all that was required for light to exist was a word. And in Psalm 33, verse 6, he says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. We cannot even comprehend that kind of power. But yes, God spoke there in the beginning of time, but God has continued to speak throughout time, throughout the centuries. He has not stopped speaking. God has never ceased. The second person of the Trinity is called the Word. And in John 1, verses 1 to 2, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. What an amazing, amazing truth. There was this word, the word was with God, but the word also was God. And we're told a few verses later that that word became flesh and dwelt among us. That was Jesus. And when Jesus dwelt among us, when he walked among humans, he spoke. And when he spoke, according to his words, his words were spirit and life. That's the power of God's words. If you remember, Jesus declared that he was the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, literally the the first letter of the alphabet in the Greek and the last letter. The Bible itself begins and ends with God speaking. He spoke everything into existence, and, and then at the end we see that Christ speaks his return for eternity. Hebrews opened with this entire idea, and we didn't focus on it so much, but the entire idea of God speaking has been a subject, and it's one to which he now returns. And I want to draw your attention to it in Hebrews chapter 1. If you just turn really briefly back to chapter 1, and you'll see this in verses 1 to 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. 
has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. God spoke. And in these last days, he continues to speak. He speaks through his son, Jesus. You might remember that Jesus was on a, a high mountain with Peter, James, and John at one point. And in that moment, God transfigured Jesus. There was a moment of, of glorification for Jesus. And we're told that his face shone like the sun and that his clothes became as white as the light and a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud and he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Jesus speaks. He is the fuller revelation of the word of God. He is the express image of his glory, the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. And he came to declare God's will and accomplish it. He purged our sins and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And today, God continues to speak to us and he speaks to us through his son. This is verifiable history. There was a person, Jesus, and he, he lived and he did miracles. It's recorded for us. He died, he rose again. And all of these actions speak. They speak to mankind. He speaks to us today through his written word. Yes, that's true. But can you not think about this? Cannot each of us testify to the fact that God, God spoke to us even before we even read the word? Honestly, you ever think about it? What about those moments that we all share in creation where inexplicably we're gazing at the beauty of a sunset? Why do people flock to the coast to gaze at the power of the ocean? Could that not be God speaking? Or those moments when we become overwhelmingly aware of our own mortality. Maybe there's been a season of sickness and death. And you're all of a sudden stricken with the fact that life is short. How do you explain that? Because the Bible says he has put eternity in our hearts. Or those moments of extreme loneliness, feelings of insignificance. Is that not the natural feeling of a created being? The psalmist said, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you would, you would love him, you would think of him? What are we? We're just these puny human beings. Or what about those times when the scales were momentarily removed from our eyes and we saw that our origin was of the divine? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, the Bible says. The Bible tells us that we all have an inherent knowledge of right and wrong. And in Romans, we learn that that's, that's the case. We, we, we do things, we understand that there's a right and a wrong just, just naturally. And the Bible says that's because the law is written in our hearts. Our conscience bears witness. That's God's voice within us. He speaks. I know I sent out a, a quote this week from A.W. Tozer, just an amazing man that thought deep and long and hard about God. And I just want to give you one other thing that he said this week that struck me. It's this. He says, God's word in the Bible can have power only because it corresponds to God's word in the universe. It is the present voice which makes the written word all powerful. Otherwise, it would be or would lie locked in slumber within the covers of a book. As if you could take this and close it, and I don't want to hear God speak anymore. God's not limited to the Bible, but he speaks to us through so many 
things. It's true, God's word is living, it is powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, but that passage is not just talking about the written word. That was, made, that was a statement made to the Israelites who refused to listen to God when he spoke directly to them through Moses. They refused to hear his word, his voice, and that's the great tragedy concerning man today. They just don't have ears trained to listen to God, to hear him. They've refused to listen. On one occasion, God spoke audibly from the heavens in the presence of Jesus and many followers, and some just said, it's thunder. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Today, he's speaking. He's speaking to you today. And what he says here in verse 1, don't refuse God. That's the message. Let me read it. Going back to our passage in verse 11, uh, chapter 12, sorry, verse 25, it says this. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he is promised saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Let me pray. God, we have before us just an incredible passage and an incredible warning. And so, Lord, too, today I just want to pray for the physical strength and the spiritual energy to speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and liberty. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the author is direct and to the point from the very beginning, and he says, respond to his voice. Respond to his voice. Don't refuse him. God has been speaking throughout eternity. And I want to point out that this is a bookend warning from the very first warning of the book. Very first one. He's, he's, he's encapsulating the whole argument from beginning to end. He spoke and he continues to speak. And so don't refuse his voice. Respond to it. If you look back to the very first warning, it came to us in chapter 2. Look back at that briefly. Chapter 2. And in verse 1, he says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? See, the law of God that came by the hand of angels, that's what he's talking about, that was so firm, that was so uh, steadfast that it, it never neglected to punish sin. Whether it was active, sins of, of, of commission or omission, active or passive. 
And this argument that he says in chapter 2, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Every disobedience, every transgression was dealt with when the word of angels was rejected. But how much more, how much more, what about those that are rejecting the, the word of the Lord? How shall we escape if we neglect that salvation, which is so great? He says, you cannot refuse God and hope to escape. That's his whole point. If you look back at verse 25, again, our passage today, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Now, you look at this word refused there that's in the passage. It's there a few times. Do not refuse him. And then if they did not escape him, uh, who refused him? A couple times you see it there. That word is supposed to draw us back to the nearest example. Who, who, who is he talking about here? Who is he referencing here? Those that did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth. Well, it's initially everyone in time past who refused him, but, and that's just throughout human history, but the author has a more specific example in mind, and it is Israel, the example that he's been using throughout the book. And so his first point here is Israel did not escape. They did not escape. That word refuse brings us back to a word that was used in verse 19. If you just look back at verse 19, 18 and 19, actually, just to get the context, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. It says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. That was drawing us back to Mount Sinai. The nation of Israel was at the foot. Remember that? And God came on top of the mountain, and there was blackness, and there was tempest, and there was darkness, and there was a trumpet, and there was a voice, and it was all so terrifying, and the voice was so loud that they begged that the word should not be spoken. And that word begged is this word, perite omai. It's the same word we're looking at today, refused. It means to avert by entreaty, or to shun, or avoid, or refuse, or decline. What did they beg to avoid there in verse 19? They begged to avoid that the word should not be spoken. Don't speak that word anymore. In fact, we looked at this in Exodus 20, 19. This is where it's recorded. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. That was after they saw that on the mountain. They said, you know what? We're not having that. You just speak with us, Moses. We can't, even, we can't even deal with that. It's terrifying. They literally refused to hear God's word speak. There it was rendered begged, but it's the same Greek word in our passage rendered refused. In addition, what they refused was not just the sound. It wasn't just the sound of God talking. It wasn't just his voice. He didn't have an annoying voice. We have several words in our passage today related to speech. Look at it again, verse 25. See that you not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks. You have speaks, and you have spoke, and you have speak. Well, speak is just speak. It's laleo. It's to talk. It's just his voice. But spoke, that's a different word. When he speaks about the, the specific example of Israel at Mount Sinai, he says, those who refused him who spoke, that word is krematizo, and it means to be divinely commanded, warned, or instructed. In fact, if you have another translation other than the New King James, that word says warned in your Bible. They did not escape who refused him who warned on earth. God was instructing and warning them, and they refused to listen. It was his divine instruction that they failed to heed. 
That was always the pattern with Israel. In fact, you look back at chapter 3 of Hebrews, which takes us to our, his second warning, and it also involves listening to God. The second warning comes to us in chapter 3. And if you look at verse 7, it says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore on my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They hardened their hearts and they wouldn't listen to his voice at all. And then he kind of reiterates it in verse 15. Skip ahead to 15 there. It says, while it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? That was the Israelites. Those, those people that came out of, out of Egypt refused to hear his voice, and they did not escape God. We're told there he left their corpses in the wilderness, and that's what happened. But another generation came on, didn't it? The children came on, and it was their time to enter the promised land. And did they do any better? God warned them as well through Moses. In Deuteronomy, it's recorded. In Deuteronomy 30, verses 17 to 18, he's, he's, he's passing the warning on to them. He says, but if your heart turns away so that you do not hear, and you're drawn away, and you worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish you shall not prolong your days in the land when you cross, which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. And that was what happened. They went in and they didn't hear his voice. They ignored him. And so God sent prophets constantly to them. And the prophets were speaking the word of God. And every time the prophets came, they, 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 they said, listen, you're refusing him. Don't refuse him. Think of the prophet Jeremiah. Look at what he says in, in chapter 11, verse 10. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words, and they've gone after other gods to serve them. Jeremiah comes in and says, you're doing the same thing they did before. You know, you're refusing to hear. Ezekiel comes to them in chapter 5, verse 5. He says, thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I've set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. For they've refused my judgments and they've not walked in my statutes. Again, you've refused me, Ezekiel says. And Zechariah, boy, Zechariah comes to them and he has all the language of the uh, uh, here around uh, the, the, the failure to heed and to listen. In chapter 7, verses 11 to 13, but they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders and stopped their ears so they could not hear. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words which, which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. And thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Therefore it happened that just as he proclaimed and they would not hear, and so they called out and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. They refused to listen to God, and so God judged them. And so when they called out to God, he wouldn't listen to them because it was too late. Now listen, that was when God spoke on earth. That's what our passage is drawing us back to. If you look at, go to our passage again. That began on Mount Sinai. 
That's described as that mountain that burned with fire and blackness and darkness and tempest and all those, those things. And there they begged that the word would not be spoken to them anymore. And when we refuse God, he will eventually refuse us. That's his point. And Israel is a, a glaring example of that. But our warning today in, in verse 25 is like the warning we looked at the first one. It argues from the lesser to the greater. Look at the second half of verse 21. Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. That was the way God spoke then when he was on earth, on the mountain. But now he has in these last days spoken to us by his son, hasn't he? He speaks to mankind today, and he does that through Jesus Christ. And where is Jesus Christ today? Well, the author of Hebrews has stressed that point over and over and over again. If you've missed that, you've been asleep. Christ Jesus in chapter 1 says he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. In chapter 4, we're told that Jesus, our high priest, has passed through the heavens. In chapter 7, we're told that Jesus became higher than the heavens. And in chapter 9, we're told that Christ, he didn't enter the holy places that were made with hands, but into heaven itself now to appear at the presence of God for us. We should understand where Jesus is at this point. And we're told here in his argument here, God's voice is now heard from him who speaks from heaven. And who is it that speaks from heaven? Jesus Christ, because he speaks to us today through his son. And his point is this, if Israel did not escape when God was here on earth, how do you think you'll escape when Jesus speaks from heaven? You will not escape, he says. Point two, you will not escape. When God speaks, he does demand that we respond and we respond with obedience. He is God. He is creator. We are creature. But the inclination of man, it's always been to question God. And this began all the way back in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden, God spoke. And he spoke the first warning and he gave it to the man, Adam. This is before Eve was created. And here's the first a warning given to Adam in chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That was God's command given to Adam before Eve. But once Eve came along, it's clear that Adam passed on that command uh, to Eve because she, she knew about the warning. She repeated it to Satan, except she added the phrase, nor shall you touch it, which obviously came from the man because as a husband, he's communicating to his wife, say, listen, God told me we can't eat from that. So listen, don't eat from that tree. If, you know what? Don't, don't even go near You know what? Don't even touch it. That's Adam. Don't go near it. Don't, don't, even, don't even touch it. And that is what she repeated. And she repeated that to the first person, the first one who questioned God's word, which was Satan, the serpent. In Genesis 3, 1, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you should not eat of every tree? Has God indeed said, that's the phrase that has continued throughout history. Has God really spoken? Does God speak? I mean, does he mean it when he speaks? Because when Adam and Eve disobeyed, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden, and the curse of sin entered their world and our world, and they died. Yeah, God meant it. And now today, we don't question what God meant when he said something. Society today has plummeted so far into blindness and darkness. We don't question whether God said it. We, just, we question whether it is a God. 
Is there a God that speaks? And so doing, we reject the work of his son on the cross who provided the only way of escape. No one escapes God's judgment. No one does. Yet but those who escape through the cross of Calvary. That's why it's called salvation. You're saved. That goes back to that warning in chapter 2 where he said, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. So you can't escape when the one way of escape, salvation, has been neglected. There is no other way. That is the escape. Israel, he says, didn't escape. Today, he says, you will not escape. When he speaks, his word is final. And he has another word for us to remember. It comes as a promise, which is point two. Remember his promise. Remember his promises in verse 26. Whose voice then shook the earth. But now he is promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. See, when God spoke on earth, his voice shook it. Well, it didn't shake the whole earth. But in Exodus, we're told that the whole mountain quaked greatly. In Psalm 68, 8, the psalmist writes it this way, the earth shook. I mean, it's dramatic. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. He's trying to make a point. God came to the mountain, and when he came, things shook, baby, and the earth shook. And the people didn't want anything to do with God speaking to them after that because they were afraid. But in that scenario, only the earth shook, or the portion of the earth, the mountain. What has he promised in the future? He says, but now he has promised saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this is a quote. The author of Hebrews often quotes Old Testament passages to make a point. And here he's quoting from Haggai. And we did that a year and a half ago or so. Haggai chapter two, verses six to seven. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more it is a little while. I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will, make, I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And in Haggai, if you remember, God is encouraging them to rebuild the temple. It's after the exile because it was destroyed by uh, the Babylonians. He has a plan for the future. And it's a plan that's not just concerning their immediate future under Zerubbabel, uh, but a more distant future. And yeah, there was a shaking that happened because the Greeks overthrew the Persians at that time. But, but the writer of Hebrews sees Haggai's vision of a future shaking of all the nations of the earth, which will cause them all to come to the desire of nations, which is Jesus Christ. And we know it speaks of a future shaking because Hebrews here says it does. <laughs> the fact that there will be a future eschatological shaking of the heavens is reiterated throughout the, 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 the Old Testament mouth of the prophets there. In Isaiah 13, 13, he says, Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. I mean, Isaiah's vision of it is, is the heavens literally shaking, and it causes all the planets to, to move. Even earth will move. In Joel's um, prophecy, in Joel 3, 16, the Lord also will roar from Zion. Oh, you mean like a voice? Yeah. And utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. And didn't Jesus prophesy that this would happen? That the heavens themselves would shake. In Matthew 13, or Mark 13, 25, the stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. 
And this event is described to us in Revelation chapter 6. And it says this, The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Can you just picture that? The stars that for us are just fixed in the heavens. Revelation says it's just shaken as if a mighty wind came up and they just fall like figs off of a tree. What is really meant by the shaking of the heavens and the earth then? Look at verse 27. He defines it for us or specifies it for us. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made. Okay, now we understand what he means by shaken. It's their removal. It's their destruction. These things are going to go away. And the prophets speak of these things as well. Isaiah 34, 4, he says, All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heaven shall be rolled up like a scroll. We even sing a hymn that has that phrase in it. And all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and as fruit falling from a fig tree. There's the falling fruit vision again. Peter draws on this same idea from Isaiah when he speaks about this point in history. 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So all the things that are made will be removed. These are created things, things that God has made. Well, how were they created? By a word. And God spoke them all into existence. In Matthew 24, 35, we're told heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. It's his word that's eternal. So what he's saying here is that why refuse, why refuse the God who speaks when you know that all these things are going to disappear? All these things will not remain. None of them will remain. All that will remain is his Word. Our society is obsessed with saving the planet and climate change and all these things. And yes, we're to be good stewards of God's creation. But listen, let me just tell you, we can do nothing to save the planet. God is going to shake it. And when he shakes it, only the unshakable remains. Verse 27 says that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. That's interesting, isn't it? He shakes it all and all the things that can shake, they're gone. They're removed. But there are things that can't be shaken, and they remain. Aren't you curious as to what things remain? If he shakes only the physical things, the things that are made, that's what our passage says, then all that's going to remain are the eternal things. There are three eternal things that will remain. One is an eternal kingdom. The eternal kingdom will remain. There is an eternal kingdom. What we see here is nothing. This is going to be gone, but there's an eternal kingdom. In Isaiah 65, 17, he speaks of the kingdom. He says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. It's, it's all going to be new, and it's God's eternal kingdom, and it's going to remain forever. You, when, 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 angel, when angel Gabriel came to Mary and was telling her that she was going to be the mother of the Son of God, he prophesied about this. He said, he's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, it will be of no end. It'll never have an ending. The prophet Daniel prophesying of this kingdom, he visioned it as a giant uh, stone hurtling out of the sky and smashing into the nations of the world and, and obliterating them, but then turning into its own kingdom that would last forever. 
In Daniel 2, 44, it says, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break into pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Why? Because it's an eternal kingdom. Why does it bash away all the other ones? Because they're physical. They're things that are made. But God brings an eternal kingdom to exist, that kingdom that cannot be shaken. And it's available to all who will hear him, who will listen, who will hear his voice. There's an eternal kingdom. There's also eternal souls that are born of the Spirit. Eternal souls born of the Spirit. And in John chapter 3, Jesus is explaining this to a leader of the people, a religious leader, Nicodemus. And he says this in in verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. If you're just flesh, you're just flesh. And what's going to happen to the flesh? It'll be removed. He says, that's why the only way you can get into the kingdom is you must have a spiritual birth, which is an eternal one, which is not something you can control. In Revelation 19, I just need to turn there really briefly, Jesus returns, and I just want you to see how vividly this is portrayed in Revelation 19. And this is him uh, destroying the physical. This is him laying waste to the flesh. In Revelation 19, verse 12, he's coming in on a white horse, and it says his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. This is Christ coming, and he is the word of God, and he is going to destroy his enemies with the word. And look at it in verse, seven, uh, verse eight, 18. This is where it begins. No, verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all the people, free and slave, both small and great. What's going to happen to the flesh, the things that are made? They're consumed. They're destroyed. They're gone. They're no more. You need an eternal spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.17 explains this. This is what we call the the new birth. This This is being born again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Well, there it is. He is a new one. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You're now part of the new. You're not part of the old. The old's going to get evaporated. You're part of the new now. And these are eternal souls that are now born of the Spirit. But the, the terrible thing is that all souls are eternal because there are also eternal souls that are cursed for eternity. When Jesus returns, he's going to separate all of humanity into two groups. And he looks at them as sheep and goats. And all those who have never heard his voice will go on the left, the goats. And all those who heard his voice and responded to his voice will be on the right. They're the sheep. And in chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 34, he says, To the sheep 
Come, you blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Who enters the kingdom? Those that are born of water and a spirit. And the sheep are they. But to the goats on the left, in verse 41, he says, And then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's eternal. They have eternal souls and this eternal judgment. That is a tragic destination of those who fail to just simply listen to the voice of God. Everyone on this planet has heard his voice. And so there's a final exhortation that comes to us in verses 28 to 29, if you want to go back to your passage. And it is this, revere his deity. We need to respond to his voice. We need to remember his promise, and we must revere his deity. In verse 28, it says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Why revere him? Because Jesus is going to rule this kingdom. And as king, he's only going to let those in who have chosen to revere him, who've responded to his voice, who have not refused him. Those who have listened to his warnings and responded with reverence, they're going to receive an unshakable, eternal kingdom. And so what should the response be of those who come into that kingdom? Pride? Oh, I'm glad I made my way here. You have nothing to do with it. Our response will be thankfulness. We'll be grateful that we're there. And so he says in verse 28, since we're receiving that kingdom, let us have grace. Now that phrase, have grace, is, is actually translated um, show gratitude. It's, it's not the grace that we read that, that goes with salvation. This is thankfulness. This is gratefulness. We should be filled with great gratitude. A grateful heart is the only acceptable heart to God because no one will be in that kingdom that earned it. The proper response is one of humble thankfulness. And we're told that we want to come that way, that we may serve God acceptably, it says. That's what we want. We want him to, to, to accept our, our service to him. We're so thankful to this God for saving us. How, how do we show our gratitude? How do we worship you? How do we serve you? Psalm 19, 14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. He's reflecting on his salvation. He's like, how can my words, how can my mouth even be acceptable to you? I'm a puny nothing. You're this holy God, and you've welcomed me into this eternal kingdom. I'm just incredibly thankful and humble. It's thankfulness mingled with humility and reverence and godly fear, it says. We must have reverence and godly fear, or you could say awe, A-W-E. Humility, gratefulness, mixed with the holy fear. Why holy fear? Psalm 89.7 says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. And you might say, well, why? Why should we fear God? Isn't he our heavenly father? Aren't we his children? Should we really fear him? Yes, because he is still holy. You are just his creation. None of us will deserve to be there, but by the blood of Jesus. In Revelation 15, we're given this as well, this, this reminder, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, 
For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. We're told to serve the Lord with fear. We're told to rejoice with trembling. How do you serve the Lord with fear? How do you rejoice with trembling? It is understanding who God is. It's why we prayed for a greater understanding of who God is earlier, a greater zeal for him. I think sometimes we be a little God. We don't know really who God is. God's my buddy. God's my friend. He's my companion. No, he's your holy God. You're a puny nothing. We're all puny nothings. How does he even know we exist? Why does he even care? I am struck to the bone by that. Why would you love me? The ultimate reason for our response to one of of holy fear is given in this final verse, verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. It takes us back to the imagery of the mountain. We're back on Mount Sinai, that mountain that was so terrible. And God's on top of that mountain. It's filled with blackness and greatness and fire. It's, It's terrible. It's frightening. But remember, I want to remember that we we didn't come to that mountain. We didn't come to Mount Sinai as believers. What mountain did we come to as believers? We came to Mount Zion. We looked at that. Mount Zion to the general assembly of the the saints. We're in the company of the living God. We're in the company of, of the angels. It's an amazing thing, but we're not to remove the reverence. We're not to remove the fear because he's a holy God. He was unapproachable on that mountain. He's approachable to to us. But this verse is meant to go back to those who have refused him, who haven't listened and say, but listen, God's a consuming fire. And the imagery is seen in Exodus 24, 17, when those Israelites were looking on the mountain and it says, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. And God judged Israel through the wilderness, throughout the wanderings. He, he consumed many a person with fire. Those who have not refused him who speaks will never experience that fire. Aren't you grateful for that? You'll never, experiencing, never experience consuming fire. But fire is always around. Fire is at the throne. Fire is in his eyes. Every time we see God, he's described with fire. But he's going to consume those who have refused him. Second Thessalonians tells us that when Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, that it's going to be in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in fire. And earlier in chapter 10, our, our author pointed out the end for those who refuse him. He said it in Hebrews 10, 26 to 27, if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. How do people receive the knowledge of the truth here? God has been speaking. He's been speaking throughout eternity. There is no excuse. Even those who have never read the Bible know the truth. Romans 1 verse 20 says, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The heavens declare the glory of God. They speak 
to us today. And all of this ends so terrible, doesn't it? This all sounds so terrible and frightening. Can I tell you? It's meant to. It's meant to sound that way because God has been speaking. He's been speaking throughout all of human history. He has declared his presence. He's made known his power. He sent his son. He's paid for sin. He's offered his grace. He's extended his mercy. He's offered us salvation, and he brings to us an unshakable kingdom. Why would you refuse him? Psalm 95, to, to end with, says, Oh, come. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice. Do you hear him? Has he been speaking to you? He speaks to you today, and he implores you, do not refuse him. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word that is so consistent, so filled with truth. Lord, we must take it all, all of the counsel that comes to us through your word. It is a hard word today, but I understand the author's passion here. It's his final warning, the final chance he has to convince those who are just on the edge of salvation, those who just won't go that last step and give themselves to to God fully. He says, please hear him. Don't refuse him. This may be the last chance you have. Some might leave today and God will be done reaching out his voice to them. That is the sad truth. And I pray that that won't be of anybody here. But instead, they would see that God is speaking. He speaks to us today strongly because he's a loving God. These warnings are here for a reason to say, I don't want this for you. Don't refuse me. He says, come to me. All these things around are gonna shake. They shake even now. That's why our world's a mess. It's all falling apart, but I have an unshakable kingdom for you if you'll just hear my voice. Would you respond to him today? Amen.